You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems at a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of business. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by ActiGel 208. ActiGel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, ActiGel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, ActiGel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let ActiGel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at ActiGel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. All right, everybody, welcome in to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. This is episode seven. Uh, it's been a little bit since we've talked to you last. It's been past the two-week mark that we typically strive for. We try to give you guys an episode every two weeks, and in this case, it's a little bit after that. But that's good. That's good. That's because we're busy. We're doing stuff. We're traveling around. We're seeing people talking to their face. Throwback to the olden times when you used to you know, shake somebody's hand on a job site. So we got to do all that recently. And uh, because of that, the podcast is, is coming out a little bit late, but uh, we do have a good one for you today. We have Dr. Heather Brown from the CIM program at Middle Tennessee State University, and we'll get into that conversation here shortly. But in the meantime, we'll check in with Paul and Joey. Paul, how's it going? Dude, I'm on cloud nine. We just did a podcast with uh, Dr. Heather Brown. That's what it's all about, man. <laughs> That's uh, uh, yeah, that's bucket list item number one. You can retire a happy man now. Yeah, the podcast can absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Joe, what's up, man? Doing good. Yeah, Doctor Brown's probably the best looking podcast guest we've had since Hank. <laughs> <laughs> that's the quiet part out loud. Oh Can't yeah. Do that. Well, <laughs> you do know this is uh, this is audio format only, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is how we can drive everyone to our Facebook and Instagram pages because there we have the MP4 video file from our Skype call mm-hmm. to go some cool clips and uh, some good sound bites that we got. And we got a couple from Dr. Brown, a couple towards the end there when she was talking about uh, stories and hurting uh, young 20-year-old men around uh, different parts of the country and the world. Good (laughs) good owner. She's a better shepherd than I would have been. She took a plane full of 20-year-old men to the capital of prostitution. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and brought them back safely. Safely. It's amazing. <laughs> the fact that she takes 40 people to World of Concrete and they come back with, you know, no missing limbs. Hardly I mean, a scratch on them. They allowed her to do it year after year. Hey, 
that's yeah. that's when you know you got things down pat and in order good for you Dr. that Brown. is that is and hey how, how about that for a promo they're gonna have to listen to the entire episode to get to that <laughs> yeah and safely safely is probably relative because there's probably if there was anything wrong with those guys when they come back they didn't tell anybody about them she was telling these stories it's like man we never got to do any of that our field trip was going to the other side of murfreesboro and pouring a sidewalk (laughs) (laughs) yeah we got to go to phoenix which is i don't know what the capital of phoenix is capital of hot something weather i don't know that's where we got to go (laughs) the scenery around phoenix is pretty good also that's uh that's where arizona state is right yeah yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty cool town. Yeah, Tampa, which is basically a suburb of Phoenix. Yeah, so we were there. It was like February, and that was my introduction to the fact that people open swimming pools in February. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's 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 a uh, it's really cool out there. My brother lives out there, um, a little bit west of Phoenix. But yeah, uh, Tempe, Scottsdale. Uh, he lives out towards a, a place Buckeye, which is like western. Is he still in the military? Uh huh. Yep, still out there at Luke Air Force Base. Working on jet engines. Working on jet engines. Yeah. Ooh, pretty rad. I mean, you're outside all the time. But he says, you know, you can get used to dang near anything. Once you sweat through your clothes, it's all the same. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of getting used to stuff, uh, you got used your whole life uh, to being a disappointed Arkansas football fan. But by God, baby. Ladies and gentlemen, when we left you last, the Hogs were a little bit on the dismal side, and, and since then, they've won two football games. Should have won three, but Auburn just continues to find a way to be the luckiest football team on the face of the planet. Auburn Jesus is real. Man. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Yep. I have no idea how these people do it. It's three games this year yeah. that the Auburn football team should not... They should be 0-5, right. but they're 3-2 and two because right. Jesus is an Auburn fan. Yep. 100%. <laughs> Outrageous. I- I have nothing to say about college football. Go Vols. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, next time that the Vols and the Alabama Crimson Tide play each other, you'll be like 5,400 days since the last <laughs> time the Vols Alabama. Yep, All right, that's right. All right, welcome to my TED Talk. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but you were mentioning getting back out on the road, and it's incredible how some parts of this country act like COVID just doesn't exist anymore and things are rocking and rolling. What did you uh, notice when you were running through South Carolina? Uh, first of all, a um, little bit of background story for our listeners. I'm a resident of Baltimore, Maryland, and I do like Baltimore, actually. I saw a bumper sticker on a car that said Baltimore, and underneath it said, I actually kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm... Um, I'm in that vein. I mean, I don't mind Baltimore at all. I, I actually kind of enjoy it. But down south, it's it, son. You got a Bojangles every two and a half miles. Everyone's real nice. The sweet tea is real sweet tea. And as soon as I left the airport, I don't think I put my mask back on until I went back to the airport to come home. So good people down there. The weather is a little bit nicer than it is up here. And uh, they're rocking and rolling and making concrete down there. Florida was the same way. Yeah. Oh, there's no rules no, in Florida. Sorry. They were shaming you for wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Joey, where'd you get to the other week? I got to Alabama last week, and it was just like what you said, Josh. I actually drove down, so I didn't wear a mask. I don't think I wore a mask one time. I kept one and wadded up in my pocket like I always do, and <laughs> I just pull that thing out. It just looks degenerative and gross by the time I get to wearing one anymore. But, uh... No, Alabama's still Alabama. Uh, it's gross in some parts, and 
Wait, so you were in Alabama for Tennessee Hate Week? I was in Alabama for Tennessee Hate Week. Went went by Tuscaloosa, uh, saw the stadium, flipped off the Nick Saban statue, uh, kept my pistol in my pocket, got the hell out of Tuscaloosa as fast as I could. <laughs> <laughs> just football in the South just means more, man. It just it really does. You know, uh, I saw I saw on social media that Joey Bell had posted a picture of Hank Williams Senior's grave. And uh, that he was happy to see it. And I just knew the very next photo was going to be his middle finger pointed at a bronze Nick Saban. And, <laughs> and I can't tell you how disappointed I've been to be correct uh, when boy Joey uh, posted that blasphemy. <laughs> it's in my blood. I didn't flip off the Bear Bryant statue, okay? I at least showed some respect, okay? <laughs> yeah, respect the dead. <laughs> well, guys, um, today our guest, as I mentioned before, is Dr. Heather Brown, and I'm I'm the odd man out here. I'm the ugly duckling, the the guy that didn't go through the CIM program. Uh, wish I did, because it's an awesome program, and it's yielded a lot of, of fine men and women that have gone on to serve the concrete industry very well. And we'll get into some of that. But almost everybody, I mean, I'm probably not stretching when I say everybody that graduates in that program has Dr. Brown to thank about many things because as she gets into detail, she she's not only um, you know producing concrete majors, she's producing young men and women and doing a, a real good job at that. So without further ado, we're going to introduce uh, Dr. Heather Brown, the director of the CIM program at Middle Tennessee State University. now we're being joined by Dr. Heather Brown, who leads the Concrete Industry Management Program at Middle Tennessee State University. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Brown. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for asking. Yes, ma'am. Well, you're the head of the collegiate program, the academic program that Joey and I both graduated from. You're the head of it then, you're the head of it now. If I'm not mistaken, uh, you've led this thing since its inception. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about it and what your role is there? Sure. Well, the, the the beginnings of the program did start before I got there. I was lucky enough to be the first professor hired. So what had happened, the, the humble beginnings is that three wonderful men that we actually call the three amigos actually had been asked to come and talk about concrete to a construction management course. There's a residential program that we have under our department now that was teaching a little bit about foundations and thought, you know, we'll, we'll get some concrete people in here and see if we can train our residential kids on some good concrete, which is uh, still happening. <laughs> so when those three amigos came, um, they realized how little the students knew about concrete and they put their heads together. One of them worked for a cement company. Uh, one of them worked for a ready mix company and one of them worked for a fiber company. So, I mean, these were concrete guys, right, through and through concrete guys. And they realized that they, we have been missing the mark to get college educated kids excited about concrete. So they went to a national meeting and pleaded with them to raise some money to convince MTSU that they needed to have a, one course in concrete, just one. And the ball got rolling and money started coming in from various ready mix producers and suppliers because they needed a workforce and started the program in like a hotel. Uh, there was a meeting in 1995 saying, we're going to do this. And MTSU signed an agreement right there on the spot. 
the dean at the time, Earl Keese, amazing man who just had the vision along with the industry and signed it and said, you know, I don't want your money anymore. I want your time. So the money had been given and then it was about time. And those guys recruited so many people to come in and foster the program. And they hired a director, Austin Cheney, who was there from 98 until I got there in 01. So I was first just going to be a professor. And then uh, I became the director in 06 when he moved on to become a dean. So I've been in charge since 06. But newsflash, I've been not in charge for two months. Oh, wow. Breaking news here. That's right. Dr. Brown, please tell us what you mean by not in charge and what the next steps are. Right. So we became a school of concrete and construction management in 2016. We merged with construction management. So we now train students in both concrete and construction management. And I've enjoyed that very much. Um, I've talked to a lot of GCs and, and various contractors, learned a lot, enjoy the synergy between the programs. I think it, it is a benefit to have concrete and construction majors in classes together. They can talk the same language, hopefully, and do that once they're actually out in the real world. But I really wanted to have some new vision. I've been here a long time. I'm in my 20th year of teaching at MTSU. And it just felt like the right time to bring in a new leader. And with the building coming on next year, I just knew that we were in a position to recruit a really top notch individual and allow me to continue more in research and just get back in the classroom more. It'd been a while. I, I taught every semester, but to really just be a teacher again and, and kind of live the life that I was living pre-2006 kind of sounded pretty good. So this new gentleman is wonderful. He comes out of Iowa, big concrete state. He loves concrete, concrete paving, which, you know, I'm jealous. That would be great if Tennessee had concrete paving. Um, but nonetheless, he has just come in here, bull by the horns, uh, just understands academia, but knows the industry, you know, from top down. So I'm, I feel blessed that he was the one that picked us and we picked him and we're off to the races. He's doing a, a great job. And then I turned CIM over to John Huddleston. So he is running CIM now. And I'm really excited about that because he's an alumni, you know, from mm -hmm. the program. And to be able to turn the reins over to somebody who is so invested in what CIM stands for uh, is exciting. And he was ready. He was ready to take a leadership role. He has worked hard uh, going through graduate school and being our lab manager and then professor. And so to hand that those keys over to him for CIM was was priceless moment for me because I just felt like I was handing it off to a next generation leader. Absolutely. And. Uh, with John Huddleston, you know, he was there when we were there, uh, I mm -hmm. believe, he was for that. And when I was a junior in the program, um, I had a research grant uh, from MTSU uh, to do a project uh, there in the lab to design uh, a novel concrete mix so that they could grow great vineyard using concrete posts rather than wood creosote posts. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was doing. And if it weren't for John Huddleston, that project would have never gone anywhere. He was just instrumental to that. And and really, he gets all the credit for that thing uh, being made, uh, the, the mix working, the forms. He did everything. I, I, I literally knew nothing. I was so green. 
and uh, and he helped me out. I don't know how many hours he put into this thing alongside with me, or even before I show up. I show up and the forms were already built, and he had everything ready for me, and and I just had to learn. And that was just phenomenal. I thank him to this day for that. That's how he operates. He plugs himself, and he's been sort of the quiet, you know, doer behind the scenes. Uh, doing things like that for students that, that sometimes go unappreciated. You appreciate it. But, you know, he was just in there in the trenches. And for him to be able to step up and now be the director, so he attends now the national meetings with our national uh, steering committee. We are now uh, awarding a fifth concrete school, another breaking news moment that's really fresh off the presses. Last week, we uh, awarded a contract to South Dakota State. And so we will have a fifth concrete school. They'll serve uh, about a five state region. Um, Naturally, we were hoping for something a little more Midwest. And so we could serve a larger region. But South Dakota State is an impressive school. So we're excited about their school. They'll serve that upper kind of Midwest, uh, North Central is what we're calling it. And then we will probably still pursue something in the Ohio, Michigan uh, Illinois region in the near future. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect uh, place for a for a concrete program, especially Ohio. You got Chicago, Indianapolis. You got those big cities around there. That sounds like a perfect location for. It does. We didn't get as many schools from that region to apply. We got seven schools, and most of them were from sort of that concrete paving lane. Uh, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin both North Dakota and South Dakota, and then Iowa. Those were the schools that really stepped up and wanted a concrete program. But we did get a, a little bit of interest from that Michigan, Ohio, Illinois. So I think that'll that'll come to pass um, sooner than later. What's that process look like? What if they wanted to open a concrete school? You know, what would you tell them to do? What's that process look like? So we do have a memorandum of understanding. It's pretty lengthy. Uh, all the things that we need a school to be. Uh, it's it's just very unique, the relationship that we have with the industry and and the commitment that you have to have from your president on down and then the local businesses and then ultimately the employers uh, is, is just critical. And then we then have to be able to fundraise to provide resources for the concrete majors to do some of the trips and and you know provide lab experiences that state funds just don't cover. And so there's that piece of it. And then hiring concrete people uh, to to teach our students. I mean, it's very difficult to find somebody that has the academic credentials and loves concrete as much as we do. <laughs> so <laughs> find those people and put them in a university setting is it, it takes time. So it, it there's a lot of moving parts. There's we sort of call it the three legged stool industry, you know, roots on the ground, patrons, and then the university itself. But schools ask us a lot. We do get asked uh, quite often if they can open up a concrete school, but we tell them you can teach concrete classes all day long, but you won't be endorsed by CIM unless you follow this memorandum of understanding. And so it's just been kind of a small club, which I kind of like. With all of your experience uh, in the CIM program, how has it changed over the last uh, 20 years or so from your humble beginnings that you spoke about till now? Um, Talk about the interest and how the interest has has changed. That's a great question because the humble beginnings was really a singular part of the industry. The ready mix part of the industry was the 
original players that came to the table and of course suppliers uh, to ReadyMix. So at first we were called the ReadyMix program. I mean, we for years, that's really who recruited from us and and who knew about us. And so we would go to other events, the precast show or the International Concrete Repair Institute show or the American Society of Concrete Contractors. And they just didn't know who we were and we wanted them to know, but we didn't understand yet how important it was going to be to grow the curriculum to meet their needs as well as the ReadyMix needs. So we took time between, I would say, 2005 to 2010, we started really creating more coursework to meet that specific market need like concrete masonry. Uh, we have a whole course in just concrete masonry. We have a course in precast. We have a whole course in decorative concrete. And it was just a way to provide extra training for students that might want to go a little different direction. And then having everybody together in just fundamentals of concrete uh, allowed those students to really just see it all. Because you just don't always know that you're going to specialize as a junior in college. You don't really know where you're going to end up, but you need to see everything but still have the opportunity to take some electives that specializes you in a way that makes you competitive. So that's been the biggest thing is our curriculum has had to grow to, to get the whole industry behind us. And, and that's been exciting. I've, I've appreciated the industry's versatility and hiring our students in so many different roles. I feel like we still open new doors on what our students can do. And that's, Probably my biggest message to parents is don't just think because you're hiring a concrete kid or sending your kid to go study concrete and they'll ultimately get hired in the concrete business that they're just going to be placing sidewalks. I mean, there's so much more going on and it's difficult to convince parents and sometimes young people that there's opportunities in different directions. You can be a different type of kid from the kid sitting next to you. You don't have to be the farm kid. You don't have to be the one that grew up around it um, to really understand and appreciate a place for you. And, and in, in sense, too, I mean, we we have about 15 percent females. So that's always something that we're pushing is letting you know girls know that there's a place for them too. companies want them. They've got skills uh, that are very much in line with what the industry needs. They're they're good multitaskers and they also tend to keep the peace a little bit better than than maybe the their counterparts some days. Um, so I think those are skills that, you know, construction can always use. But that's been the biggest thing. And then we started the, the graduate program, the master's in concrete industry management in 2013. And so that was a big shot in the arm. We loved starting that because that was addressing a need for people that had already landed in the concrete business but didn't have a degree and were really just learning trial by fire. But they had been successful enough that their management was looking to promote them and they just needed those extra business skills that would give them that that leg up. So the MBA provides them that skill set and, and really that extra knowledge. And then it introduces it reintroduces them to a cohort of people that are out there that just kind of grows their network. And that's been positive. So we've had about 40 students graduate out of the graduate program. And that's been really positive, too. Can you kind of go into uh, what the differences are between the graduate program and the bachelor's that Paul and I have? Uh, what's different? What would it do for our careers? Uh, what would we expect uh, once we got in there? Sure. It really is remarkably different. Uh, it's truly an MBA 
with a, a splash of concrete, whereas the CIM undergraduate is quite the opposite. It's, it's a concrete degree with a splash of business. So we knew that the people that were coming into this were going to be most of the students that come in they're, they're between 32 and 45 years old. Uh, they're in the busiest time of their life. They're having babies they're getting married. It's not the time to be going back to school, but it typically is the right time to have a degree to, again, separate them potentially from some other folks in their business to show their their management, you know, they're ready to take on a bigger role. So what I have been told from the students, from the alumni, because I ask them when they graduate, what, what really is this going to do for you so I can pass that along to potential recruits? And every time I have a, a conversation with alumni, they tell me that they're learning skill, business skills in the classes that they're able to utilize that day at their job. Uh, a big class that everybody really likes is business analytics. So really diving into more complicated Excel spreadsheets on how you can make that work for your company for forecasting or for analyzing data. So that's been one that's been really popular. Uh, we have a great guy that teaches a operations management class that I feel takes it much deeper than your undergraduate operations management class. He's, uh, you know, Six Sigma minded, but he's just looking at it from more of an industry perspective wholeheartedly. Uh, we have a great guy that does strategic development. Um, and so that that class is really helping you be an asset to your company as your company looks to position themselves for future opportunities. So you're part of that strategy, business decision mindset. Um, so those have been three classes that have really jumped out for students. But then there's even a class on or organizational behavior, just being able to manage people better, teams, project management. I mean, that's the name of this of this industry really is just being one big firefighter, project manager, and just being able to do that better. So I think it touches on a lot of different parts of, of what makes a person successful in that middle management, upper management world. Yeah, I, I like the sound of all that. That sounds pretty, pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's kind of step back, uh, going back to your beginnings. What mm -hmm. got you uh, into concrete material sciences? Um, tell us your story up to when you took the job at MTSU. Sure. So I do actually get asked that question quite often, and it's probably because I am female, maybe. Uh, that's probably the, the most obvious is, what's a girl like you, you know, hanging on concrete? Um, I think it, it, if they knew my childhood, it would be so easy and so obvious. I was one of, of a lot of siblings, and I was the the tomboy. Um, I didn't really start looking like a girl till I, gosh, till I got married. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I if for anybody that's listening that has a uh, that's older than 45, you'll remember an ice skater by the name of Dorothy Hamill. And she wore she had this really short haircut, looked like a boy. My mom cut my hair like that when I was about five and it it never left me until I think I was in high school. I finally grew it out. So I just I was a tomboy. I was outside all the time. I built forts with the local um, boys. I lived on military bases. I was a military brat. And so um, there wasn't a lot of sports for girls. So I was always on boys sports teams. I was on the boys you know, soccer team my whole childhood. So being around boys was extremely comfortable. Uh, I was over at their house. They were at my house. We spent the night at each other's places, played Legos, Star Wars. I mean, you name it. It was just the way I was uh, brought up. And my mom was very supportive of just me being me. And she never questioned why I only asked for 
you know, dirt bikes and, um, you know, things that boys liked. I never had a doll. I never had a Barbie. So, you know, it was just the direction that my life was headed. But in ninth grade, I took a, a test that they give in, on the military base called the ASVAB test. And it's supposed to help you uh, think about career. And it really is supposed to help you decide if you might go military. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it it actually came back for me to be a civil engineer because of my love of materials and construction. I guess it just came through in this test. And I believed it. I was sold that day. I said, oh, I guess there's a job out there that sounds like me. I didn't know a civil engineer. My dad was military, so I didn't know an engineer or anybody that was in construction. But it did sound like a good fit. So I spent the rest of high school not really thinking about how to be a better civil engineer. I just knew one day that's what I was going to do. And so I went to Tennessee Tech, which is just you know, about an hour from from Nashville. And it's, uh, it's a great engineering school. Everybody that goes there, uh, for the most part, chooses engineering. And I had a wonderful experience because right away I was able to land um, work in the concrete lab. Uh, my sophomore year, I was breaking cylinders and, uh, you know, running mixes and doing sieve analysis. And so I I found concrete quick and thankfully because I, I really it made my whole college experience. It, it changed the course of my college experience because I was so invested in the material that I got into research and I really had a great advisor. I had a, a gentleman that had never mentored a female before, and, and he and I joked joke about that a lot. He took a chance on me and, and kept me in school through my master's and PhD, and it was all funded by the DOT. So he had good relationships with TDOT and that he was asked to do research quite often, and projects just kept coming to him that he needed help with, and I, I, was, I was his girl. Anything he needed done related to and we did some asphalt and we did masonry, um, but I just kept going back to concrete. It was just something about it that made me excited for the future. It just seemed like it had so much innovation even then. And this was in the early to mid 90s. But I just saw it as something I could I could grow old with, literally. <laughs> and uh, and so it was it was a great experience. I was in college eight years. But, you know, after those three degrees, I just felt like. I was positioned to do anything I wanted to do. And it was a wonderful opportunity to I tell young people it's great to know what you want to do in life. And I was very fortunate. But you've got to you've got to seek that, too. You can't expect it to fall in your lap. You have to work towards a goal. And if you don't exactly know that it's civil engineering or another track, there's there's ways to to take your personality and fit it into a career. And I think people should do that earlier in life than they do sometimes, because I think they get to college and just kind of meander around a little much. But I, I was very fortunate that I was able to start my college career knowing what I wanted to do and and finish it you know, with a goal. And I, I was not going to be a teacher. That was the last thing on my list. Um, I was going to go work in consulting or material testing. All of my graduate school was paid for by TDOT and it was through the materials and test division. So I'd been working with them as a graduate student for five years and I thought they were great. I thought they hung the moon and they were good to me and, and allowed me to work on 840. We blew up some bridges and built some bridges back on 840. So we, we had fun times. 
And I was you know, considering to work for them. I actually interviewed a couple other places and settled on a job in Chicago when uh, MTSU came calling. I was about to leave to move to Chicago. I had not signed the paper yet to go work in Chicago, but I was basically there. And a couple of guys came to Tennessee Tech and found me in the concrete lab and said, hey, we're starting the CIM program and we need a professor. So here I am. Well, that's a that's a, a really inspiring background, and it's good to know that uh, you kind of had an idea and a focus on what you wanted to do before you even got to college. I believe you're unique in that. If I can if I can talk for the majority of college students out there, um, but you're also unique in the fact that you are a female in a in a male dominated profession. I would say, uh, and you mentioned that you have about a 15% rate of of females in your program now. Is there anything you do that's unique to retain the female um, students that you have or or even recruit to to try to get more females in there and, and try to mentor them through the processes and kind of use your success and, and your background to help them? So I, I would like to talk about that because I think I do a good job of getting them in the door. But where I haven't been able to probably connect is how to keep some of them. And I think it's because um, every, girl's gonna, every girl or every guy is going to be made of a little different stuff. And I think once you're in this business, you got to be made of some tough stuff. It doesn't matter what role you take in this business. If you don't have a tough exterior and potentially even a tough interior on most days, you're probably not going to make it. And so I guess I don't sugarcoat it enough while we have them to keep them. <laughs> But I definitely can sell them on it. And and I kind of let them fall out on their own. Uh, I don't really try to push a certain agenda by trying to have, you know, a lot of females in just for the sake of having a lot of females. I really did think after all these years that we would have more than 15 percent. I always had this goal in my mind of 25 percent. One in four would would be wonderful. But I just don't know that that there's enough girls out there that could do this job uh, in the industry. And I think um, Joey and Paul could probably agree to some extent that it, there's limits for even guys on their personality on whether or not they're going to make it. And I've seen guys fall on their face. So it's, it's definitely not just sequestered to females, not making it. It's, it's really just, it's a, it's a hard industry. And so how I sell it is that, Again, females do bring some unique tra- traits to the table. They, they absolutely do. And, and I think industry has figured that out. They're great project managers. Um, they can bounce a lot of balls and, and definitely keep things moving. They're, they're just naturally multitaskers. That's kind of in our DNA. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a man's world. <laughs> so you've got to kind of fall in with, with that crowd in your own unique way, though. I have met women who, you know, bake cookies and bring them to plants. And then I have met women who they want to watch football and drink beer. So I like them all because I feel like the industry needs to see how diverse we are and that we still it still works. I think uh, real quick, Paul, I know you got a question, but I think, uh, yeah, females certainly aren't exempt from spending time in the industry and then getting out. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before. There's so many graduates that we personally know uh, that have been in the industry for a handful of years and have gotten out. And we've also discussed before that, you know, we'd like to know either why they 
why they chose to get out of the industry, what the percentage of graduates are, or what the percentage of graduates is that have stayed in the industry. Um, it'd be interesting to know, and you, you say you have a hard time, you know, retaining females. Uh, once you get out, once you graduate, uh, you know, all bets are off whether even if they're a dude, if they're going to stick around. So I don't, it's I true. Beat, I wouldn't beat yourself up too bad. <laughs> I mean, I've had my lows about it, but we, we retain in the industry upon graduation. We have been tracking this. We're at about 88% that are in some related. I'll, I'll use a wide berth of what they might be in, but they're in related industries after graduation and, you know, five years plus. But I have tracked the ones that have left. And for the females out there, a lot of them go to careers like nursing or potentially teaching because it's a little more conducive to family life. Uh, Once they start having kids, uh, it's a little different sometimes on how they're able to manage. And the industry, depending upon the role that they're in, it may not just be feasible um, to do the job they're doing. Now, could they have gone and found another type of construction related job, concrete related job that might have been, you know, more family friendly? Maybe. But they sometimes are just quick to pull the trigger, escape. And then I've seen a few of them migrate back, though. Uh, we had a, an alumni in North Carolina. She left the cement industry to start a family and then went to nursing, uh, nurse, did nursing for six or seven years. And now she's back in the concrete business. So, you know, it's in your blood. You got to come back. <laughs> I'm actually glad you brought up the family thing. It was one of the things I wanted to touch on that wasn't in uh, our, our pre-list here. You are an example of someone who has achieved and raised a family. You, you've got, what, three kids? Am I right? You got three kids? Two. Two boys. Mm-hmm. Right. So you got, well, it probably feels like three since they're both boys. <laughs> but, but you've been successful and you've raised that family. But you're successful not by happenstance. You put in the work. And even as a student, I remember uh, you would respond to my emails that I had sent you as an undergraduate. And you would respond and be like 1145 at night. I'm like, what is this lady doing? I know I saw her in here at like 630 a.m. or 7 a.m. And and not wearing sweatpants. No, you were dressed up for the job. Uh, but then also took care of your family and then took care of your work at night, uh, well into the night sometimes. And mm-hmm. that's hard work and that's dedication. So I think people can have it all if they want to. I'm a single father. It's just me and my little girl. And so I know what it means to go out and work really hard. And then all night is with your little girl. And then when you put her to bed, you then get to clean the house and do the chores and then wake up with her again in the morning and then go back to work. So I know what that feels like, but uh, for people who think they can't have it all, I think that's a misnomer. You have to find uh, what avenue you can work in and how to tailor that to your life and then work really hard uh, like you did. And mm-hmm. so how did how did you know um, or, or what what was the light? bulb? was there any light bulb moment for you as uh, you developed the CIM program uh, and then began to have a family? And you said, mm-hmm. all right. Let's buckle down and I'm going to be a good mother uh, and lead a program that's never been created before. Well, I think that's exactly what I had to you know, tell myself every day is that I, I love my job and I couldn't imagine not continuing 
to be around something that was so exciting to grow. And I felt like I was growing another family. I mean, I actually think of my alumni as my kids because it's really something that I had a, you know, a three or four year part of their life. And and I'm very proud. It's one of the, the things I'm most proud of of this job is, is seeing the accomplishments of the alumni and knowing that they've started a career that, you know, we're all going to be able to look back and see all of this infrastructure and all the projects that you've worked on and point to those. And it's just a long lasting legacy for everybody. And so by building you as alumni, you've built, you know, the country. And and that is a huge, it's a huge attaboy for me. And, you know, I'm not driven as much by money. I'm more driven by probably goals and outcomes and deliverables. And so seeing every student succeed was kind of like another deliverable, another outcome, another goal. And I didn't, I couldn't let go of that. And so I think if a, if a person can find their passion, I don't think they would imagine their life without it. And, and I think family, although didn't come second, it was a close equal <laughs> to my job. Uh, my job just always felt so, and you know, 1145 was my normal until um, a few years ago, I switched my schedule and I now get up at four and I start my emails now at 4 a.m. Um, I switched it just just to try something different and I go to bed a little earlier, but I start. So now you get, if you email me, you'll get something at about 4.15. But I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I, I did waver after I had my second child. I, I actually thought, am I crazy that I just still want to go back to work? I mean, that was what was in my head. And I felt I had that mom guilt, you know, or every, every other moms at, at the local children's museum taking their kids. And I'm, you know, going to the national precast show um, in some random city, to, you know, USA. And I, I couldn't imagine my life without, without it. So I'm thankful that I have something that I want to get up and do every day. And I, and I, appreciate your comments about working hard and, and, you know, being a female and having family, but I, I can admit I am not on the trajectory that, that you two in the, you know, Joey and, and Paul and this concrete business and then the females and, and men that are out there, I sort of on the soft side of the business, you know, I'm in academia and I can admit that, that it's, it is different. You know, there's some flexibility in what I'm doing and, you know, I'm able to kind of call my shots, which I enjoy um, and, and kind of plan my day. But but I'm, I'm in it to win it every day. Yeah, I can't imagine even with me being in this job has allowed me much more flexibility than at the previous job when I was on the paving train, you know, putting down airfields and taxiways. Uh, when we were working 12, 14 hour days in the summer, six days a week, sometimes seven and that would have been hard enough as a male. I couldn't imagine being a female and being in that environment with that schedule. And then you're pregnant for nine months. Uh, right. And then after the kid is born, you take, you know, however X amount of maternity leave. And if you did all that and then came back to that same environment, I, I cannot imagine what that would, what that would be like. And yeah. it would have been, it would have been, it was hard enough on me as a CIM graduate going out there and doing this stuff. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I got cussed out, you know, once a week, but I couldn't imagine doing all that, being a mother and yeah. living that kind of life. So I, I get how 
some females can get out of the industry and because uh, a lot of a lot of us graduates, they, we start out on traje- trajectories like that. We take these QC jobs, we take these you know field jobs, we do we take anything we can get because we need the experience. And that kind of lifestyle is more, you know, is more keen towards a younger person that's able to stay up all night. We were staying up all night in college anyway for you know <laughs> reasons that can't be discussed on a public platform. But uh, yeah, I I can't imagine being a female in this industry and not being and being in the yeah. field or something like that. Well, and one thing I do say to students too, is you can gain street cred in a, in a lot of different ways. It, you know, I hats off to people who are able to do it. Like you, like you just talked about the paving train and the, the 12 to 14 hour days, but there are other ways. And so I, I sort of look at, at my career path as just another way that I was able to gain, you know, a foothold in the business. And, and there's a lot of opportunities like that. It, it's so that's what makes it, I think a, another reason why it's such a great industry is, you know, you go to a, an ACI convention and I mean, you're talking to concrete nerds. I mean, they've never seen a paving train, uh, but it's wonderful that that they are in this business just like, you know, you and me. And and it, it, it takes all of us, I think, to keep it high level, to keep it innovative and to keep it at a respect level that architects and engineers continue you know, to go back to it and say, you know, what are the concrete people doing? So. I appreciate the the diverse crowd of people that are in this business. What um, what advice would you give to new graduates that are either graduating now or have just recently graduated? What would you what advice would you impart to them? So I'm I'm really a proponent of of specializing your career. I feel like you really need to find a niche that you can be excited about and and pursue. Because I, I think that's what also brings so much to this industry is all the different products and all the different value engineering opportunities that we have. Because it's, you know, raw materials and, and all the kind of old guard ways that have been around aren't going to be around forever. And so the more you can kind of steep yourself in the science and, and not be afraid of the math and the business analytics side and the spreadsheets and I feel like you've just got to dive in differently than you did in college. College, you're getting you're being taught how to learn and you're being taught the, you know, sort of the over the 30,000 foot view of this industry. Um, but you need to roll up your sleeves and dive into a subject matter and become the expert. Uh, be somebody that people want to call when they have a question that that to me is is the kind of person we should all want to be. But wouldn't it be great if everybody called, you know, you for, you know, a certain type of question? I mean, even if you got asked the same question over and over, it's just you you are now the expert. And I feel like that is a career goal that people should have no matter what part of the business they're in. Yeah, That's we, excellent. We know friends in the industry that are those people that mm-hmm. we call when we have a question about certain things. Episode one, Brian Betts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, if you don't know Ryan Betts, I, I wish you did. He's I do. He's great. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, Ryan Betts is gonna be sixty-five someday. There's gotta be another Ryan Betts. And that's what I tell the kids is we gotta keep having a pipeline of people that want to be 
the leaders of the of the industry. And that's never going to end. And and one way to get experience and a niche or something that's going to be the future is by training yourself uh, at MTSU in the concrete lab. Uh, and you guys are always taking on the next forefront of research projects for the concrete industry. So can you tell us uh, any of the research that you're working on now and things that we can expect to come out of uh, the MTSU lab? Absolutely. Um, now that I'm not sitting in meetings about meetings, I'm actually doing a lot more research. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're working on a couple of different projects right now in the lab. Uh, I've got a Portland limestone cement study going on. That's you know big right now. Everybody's trying to find kind of low hanging fruit on how to be more environmentally conscious. And so now that that's an approved cement substitute. I think people are all jumping on it. So we're we're checking out the Lehigh Hansen, you know, EcoSim product and we're comparing and contrasting that to a couple of other sources of potential PLCs. So that's one study. Uh, one of my really exciting studies that I've got going on is cement stabilization in Tennessee. I've really enjoyed that. It's got me out on paving jobs again. It's been a while since I've been around asphalt. So I've, I've enjoyed uh, just being around that crowd. I, I like, um, you know, just the industry from a, a paving, you know, heavy civil perspective. But right now, Tennessee TDOT is, you know, kind of toying around with full depth reclamation. 440 was a partial full depth reclamation job. And we've now secured two other projects in Tennessee, really more state routes, industrial access roads that are the a better fit for FDR. And our research study is actually a, a team effort. We're, we teamed up with University of Tennessee Chattanooga. They have a great asphalt lab down there. And of course, we've got our concrete lab. So we're sharing this project where they're running the asphalt mixes and looking at a lot of the um, overall kind of mechanistic empirical design of the full depth pavement. And then I'm particularly looking at the subgrade and the sub-base and the cement stabilizing agent and, and just looking at those properties. So that's been exciting. Um, I'm looking at recycled concrete aggregate with Dr. Yang. So Dr. Yang secured a research project. Uh, Tennessee just approved recycled concrete aggregate for 100% base stone replacement. So that's been going down for a couple of years. But now they're very interested, of course, in in looking at concrete mixes, class A and class D concrete mixes. Um, just quite honestly, we've already got enough data. Dr. Yang's done a wonderful job at, at just looking at everything from returned concrete to demo concrete to kind of mixed construction, C&D waste. And, and exactly that, you don't know what you're going to get out of a concrete mix with RCA. It is a mess. Um, so many things change from mix to mix. I can't imagine the quality control that would have to occur to, to work with RCA. So it's not looking great. <laughs> um, it, it probably will be a base stone replacement in Tennessee for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But I don't really see it being a reliable source for concrete mixes. Um, we actually we used to use a uh, recycled concrete aggregate for base when we were paving, but most well all the work that we did while I was there was on it was basically private property, you know, it was airports, mm -hmm. air force bases, so they could basically just set their own rules. 
So we would, when we would tear up a taxiway, we'd send it through the crusher and we called it 21A, I think is what uh, we would call it. That's what the screens were set as. And we would have just piles of this stuff and that's what we would use to lay down base, uh, mix it with a little bit of cement, just enough to get it, you know, hard and uh, grade it, roll it, and then pay right, right back on top of it. It was, it's pretty cool. But like you said, it's going to, I think it's a can of worms when you go to putting it into actual concrete. So there's, I'm anxious to see what you guys find out. Yeah. We just reported a kind of a mid year report to TDOT and, you know, we have a lot of data, but it, the scatter of the data from mix to mix is just scary looking. And it really just makes you shake your head to think that TDOT especially would ever put that in a specification. Um, I can't imagine being the inspector on a job like that. So so it may just stay a, a nice under pavement material. But one project I have going on right now that's pretty unique is we were approached by a sledgehammer company that specializes in various, uh, I guess I would say, you know, specialized hammers, but they have in a very, I'll call it expensive, $100 sledgehammer, which I guess is expensive in, in most people's eyes, that is focused for the concrete business. It's it's meant to help break concrete easier. It's meant to eliminate vibration in your hand better. It's has a better strike pattern. So they've marketed this thing towards concrete contractors and nobody's buying it. <laughs> so <laughs> so they came to us and said, what are we missing? You know, why we go to World of Concrete, we demo it, you know, we we give a lifetime warranty guarantee if it you know, it will, it'll never break. They basically put steel rods in the handle and then it's like a rubberized handle versus fiberglass or, or wood handle. So it's a great hammer, but it's it's $100. And so they have asked us to do a market study and then do some time trials proving that it's a more efficient hammer, that it will get the job done. And it could even be, you know, just for form staking. It doesn't necessarily have to be used for breaking up concrete, but they are curious as to what applications maybe a concrete person might use it for that they're not thinking about. And could they help, you know, machine this hammer a little bit differently to be more attractive? So we, I had my seniors go out and interview concrete contractors. Not a one of them had heard about this hammer. Uh, so that was, you know, telling that this hammer has been out on the market for a few years and nobody uh, you, you can't go to Lowe's and buy it. You can't go to Home Depot and buy it. So I think it's missing the the crowd for the most part because you, you talk to a concrete contractor and they've got 30 sledgehammers on their trailer. So they've got plenty of them, but they're used to them breaking and they just know they're going to go have to pick up another one. And that's just their mindset. They don't think to buy an indestructible sledgehammer for, you know, four times the price. So we're still working with them on, kind of how they might be able to craft their hammer a little bit differently. Uh, maybe they need to have some side strike plates to, you know, drive in stakes a little bit easier to not bust the heads of wood stake. Just a couple of things that contractors have let us know might, might make a difference. But right now it's, it's still a, you know, a discovery project, but it's, it's been interesting doing more of a marketing study. Well, i tell you what the real reason is Dr. Brown and, Josh Hare here can attest to it is I don't care how much it costs a joker will grow legs and be gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, if they can develop a legless sledgehammer, then that's gonna that thing's gonna be worth two hundred dollars. Put a GPS tracker in that thing. Yeah, put a right. chip in it. <laughs> Theft has been brought up by a few contractors, <laughs> so you're proving their theory that that's mainly where those things go is uh, in the hands of somebody, somebody else besides they are probably their own guys. Who knows? Likely. That's that's usually where it comes from is, is closer to the closer to your inner circle there. Um, what pops into mind if I were to ask you, what's your favorite project that you've done? I mean, you know, the sledgehammer project, the lime, uh, Portland limestone projects. And, you know, you have so much experience doing uh, projects for outside vendors and ready mix contractors and, and so on and so forth. Do you have a favorite project that you've done since being there? Well, probably my favorite project was doing artificial concrete reef in Dominican Republic. That was a great career opportunity to just take students to a a third world country that, you know, very underdeveloped and see how important concrete was to them. If they are going to build anything of value in in a developing country, it's going to be made out of concrete. And that was just kind of like a light bulb moment for the kids of like, wow, I'm in a really great industry if, if they they value this material so much. So to see, you know, how much that meant to the community for us to help them, uh, we basically are w- built just artificial reef prisms and scuba dived them down into a bay that was consistently being um, a source of flooding for that side of the island. And so they needed more resistance against some of the natural flooding that was occurring. Unfortunately, we went for five years, uh, myself and John and Kevin and Sally, we went you know, year after year and we were building the reef up. And then three years ago, 2017, they were hit by Hurricane Michael and it obliterated the north side of the island. And so the beach that we had worked on for five years straight was gone. There actually was no beach left. It was completely sucked out to sea. So our little, you know, reef project <laughs> didn't didn't hold hold a chance, I think, against Hurricane Michael. But nonetheless, um, they have reached out to us since then and want us to switch gears. So they didn't have a beach for about two years. It did eventually come back to some degree and they've done some dredging and now have a beach again. But we're probably going to switch gears and start looking at residential um, concrete homes there because they that's really what needs to occur first is shelter. They they had block homes, but they were in large part cracked with you know very shoddy roofs. And so just going in and doing some proper construction would would really probably mean more to more community members than the reef. One thing that the reef did do that kind of helped us keep going back is they were bringing in uh, tourists on the north side through a port. They had finally gotten permission to have a cruise ship port. And and so our project was helping bring back some of the local sea life for scuba diving for tourists. And so we felt like in a way that was still helping the larger picture of the community gaining, you know, financial means by having tourists come and be happy there. It's a beautiful country, but it just so happens that Sasua, this town that we were in, was the number one uh, prostitute capital of the world. 
<laughs> we did not know that until our first trip there. And I start, you know, I looked up Sasua and nothing came up that would have told me that. And it's, you know, obviously kind of an unwritten, an unwritten understanding with people that that's what Sasua is, but it is actually literally the number one prostitute capital of the world. So it was all I could do to keep my college 21 year old boys <laughs> in the hotel. <laughs> I kind of figured that's where this is going. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting. But again, another exposure to what it's like outside of the U.S. that just makes you thankful and and, you know, happy to come home. So we were you know, it was it's it was a learning experience for everybody. We we went back to the same hotel every year. They were wonderful hosts to us. And and it's a great country. But it you know, it definitely needs a lot of outside support to to keep going. It would be really cool to see a bunch of uh, like concrete dome shelters down there or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a little bit more robust against the storms that they had. Right. Yeah. I actually was going to ask you about, um, you know, in your time here and you're, you're ready to move into the next stage. But you've been herding cats as you have a bunch of 19 and 20 year old knuckleheads, you know, us mm-hmm. included at some point in time. Uh, during that trip, and so it's pretty funny <laughs> that you uh, had that situation. Hard enough in Murfreesboro, I can't imagine in that town. Uh, you may not remember, but it was a uh, defining moment in in my life, really. But but most certainly in my college career, where you gave me some tough love in your office one time. Uh, I've told the guys this story before, but I, I, now we're going to put it on air. Uh, with Dr. Brown here, uh, but it was, uh, I can't, I think it was junior year. It might've been, it had to be junior year. And we were in Mr. Folk's class, you know, rest in peace. And folks, uh, I, I didn't show up to like half the classes, maybe more than half the classes that we had that year. Only really only showed up if we had tests or quizzes or something to do and, and just studied in my own time. And at the end of the year, I, I had a, a B grade. And when he called us up to give our grade uh, for the semester, uh, he had failed me. And I couldn't believe it. I had never been more angry at somebody because I thought that I had earned this B grade because the test report said so. And and folks says, no, you earned a failing grade. And I was so mad. I I had all the policies. Oh, this says I don't have to be here. And I, I, you know, I know what I know. And he said, I'm sorry, you can take it up with Dr. Brown. So I did. I marched my uh, happy self all the way down the hallway and and barged right into your office. And I, I said, Dr. Brown, he, Mr. Folks failed me. This is outrageous. <laughs> just very, very matter-of-factly matter of uh, said, so when you get out in the real world and you're managing a project, you're just – not going to show up for two months, but it's okay. You know everything. <laughs> oh. I love it. <laughs> oh, I, I had never been so defeated by a single sentence in my entire life. And I no, yes, that's not how I should act. And you said, no, it's not. And we're here to train you on how to act, not just how to make concrete. So I'll see you next semester. (laughs) (laughs) And there's why I don't retain everybody. (laughs) (laughs) 
I I remember that semester, and that semester was rough on all of us, but we had one more good time. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, anytime I can impart a little wisdom like that, I, I try to jump on those opportunities because I don't want to see, I don't want to look back and see that student get out and and stumble around and you know and job hop and I think you know if I had just pulled him up by his collar a little bit, you know, it, it could have gone differently for everybody. So you were one of the lucky ones, Paul. <laughs> you caught me on a good day. <laughs> we got, uh, I say, unless everybody else has any more questions, I say we got one more question, then we'll wrap it up. And you told us about the the interesting things you saw people wise in the Dominican Republic. Uh what is the craziest or what's the most interesting thing you've seen on a job site or at the university that doesn't involve me and Paul? Wow. <laughs> so while, while Dominican was, was an experience, I would say taking 25 kids to the world of concrete in Las Vegas every year is probably the craziest thing somebody can do. <laughs> I remember my first world of concrete before they always went to Las Vegas, we actually went to new Orleans and it, Ooh. yeah, it was great. I wish we did the rotation like this now because we would hit all the big cities and we took a, we rented a charter bus and took 50 kids to World of Concrete in New Orleans. And probably that week was the craziest World of Concrete I ever had because I myself was 27 years old. And then I have 18 to 22 year old kids with me. And I think collectively, we just didn't have a brain that week. <laughs> I, I think my I think I checked my brain at the door just like they did. And we just enjoyed ourselves. But that was uh, that was probably my craziest week. And I, I, I definitely reflect on that and think I was just a baby, uh, you know, just getting in this industry and trying to figure it out and and world of concrete was definitely a place where I had to learn how to be a grown-up really quick because there was 25 to 50 other grown-ups or kids with me over the years we have collected quite a litany of war stories of things that happen on on trips and I'm able to use those to talk to the next years and the next years and tell them what not to do so so it's much better now um the, probably going to Las Vegas this last time, now that they've legalized the things that they've legalized, that was a little tougher. Um, that that trip, that was recently, and that was a little hard. Now, what we used to worry about was them, you know, staying out all night. Now we can't get them out of their hotel room. So, you know, it's it's, it's always something different with, with the student population. That's probably the other thing is the students have changed a lot over the years. So not only has the program had to, had to change and grow with the industry, we've had to change as we've gotten different generations of students in and, and what they're like. And I've had to reinvent how I work with them because they're, they're all raised differently because they're being raised by different generational parents. So that's been very difficult, uh, but also enjoyable in the sense that I'm able to convey to an employer what they're getting. You know, you're getting somebody that knows concrete to some degree, but here's the person that you're getting and what they're going to be made of. And here's how, you know, you need to work with them, but this is how they're probably going to work with you. And it may or may not be a match. And I'm okay if it's not a match, 
I am not going to push, you know, a student on an employer if it's, you know, if it's not um, the right fit. So so that's that's the other challenge, I think, in being in this role is just making sure we understand what these students are going to bring to the table and how we foster, you know, what they what their development has been like to that to that point in time. I, I love that Joey was trying to end on a high note, but there was one more question I had that is a little more serious, but I'm very interested because when Joey and I were in school, the economy fell out. It, 06, 07 were great. Uh, we were having concrete socials. The schedules were full. People were banging on our doors. They were begging us to come out for internships. They were paying money. I, oh, we'll give you a housing stipend, stipend and pay you like $20 an hour to come work an internship. It was it was incredible. And then uh, 08, 09, it disappeared. It was completely gone. And there we were in 09, starting our seniors years. And there were no jobs. There were there were no socials. There was nothing. It was a barren wasteland. And you had to navigate through that. Um, are you seeing any similarities in the current atmosphere with the coronavirus? Uh, are the challenges similar or are they different? Could you talk about that for a second? Absolutely. I think it's a great topic because we used to joke, not joke, but we used to sort of say, you know, cement consumption curves from 09 to 13 almost was identical to our student recruitment curve. We were not able to convince young people to get into this business during those years. And those were tough. The employers were gone. And for the most part, the students were gone. We went from over 400 students in 08, 09 to almost 150 uh, in 2012, 2013. So we we got killed just like the industry. So we had to rebuild and figure out, you know, how are we going to, you know, whether the the few lean years that were still ahead of us, because 12 and 13 still weren't healthy years. Uh, we really didn't probably fully rebound until 14 or 15. But I'll tell you, the last two years has been very reminiscent of 06 and 07, the boom years. We have been, you know, beating employers off with a stick. It's been wonderful. However, we haven't had enough students necessarily to supply just like before. So we were clamoring at getting more students. And now we're sitting here again, over 400 students and coronavirus hits. And here, you know, it's just deja vu. Oh, my goodness. So what has been different about this one, though, is everybody's, for the most part, still busy. So my students are working. They're working primarily part time jobs and they're able to do that even more so because we're online in some cases at MTSU. So they're actually working more hours at a construction or concrete related job, zooming in to their classes at MTSU and building quite a resume over these last eight months. And so I'm not keeping them from that. I'm telling them, go work as much as you can. Zoom into my class any day you want, because you're going to need that experience once people aren't busy and people are, you know, a little hungrier and they're look. they can only make a few choices on some key hires. You need to be that guy or girl that has as much experience as possible to be the one that gets hired. So I believe that we are not quite at the point where our students are not getting jobs completely, 
but we're seeing less and less employers with full-time positions available for next year. The internship program almost all but vanished this summer. Nobody wanted to have an intern on their job site. The liability was just something they didn't want to mess with. So while I had part-time and full-time guys, you know, covered my interns, just it, they struggled. So they all went and found what I would just more call labor jobs uh, in the industry. I mean, I had a guy that got a job, you know, sweeping floors in resident, new residential home construction just to get his foot in the door. So I, I think the verdict is still out a little bit on what next year's full-time graduates will be doing. But I don't think it's going to be a bright picture, unfortunately. Um, let's hope it's not as bad as 09 and let's hope it doesn't last as long. But I do think architects are a little less busy right now. And I've heard the statistic that there's less cranes being ordered for big high rise jobs. Uh, so all that means something for us concrete folks, you know, at some point. It's just not been as evident in the yardage that is being poured right now because uh, people have been backlogged. But that's going to break at some point. Yeah, we uh, we hear the same thing. Uh, we travel to a mm -hmm. lot of different places in the United States doing work, and uh, they're saying the same thing, that uh, they're still busy now, uh, but when they look at the projects that were on the books for 2021, you know, they might have had nine projects, and now they've only got one or two. Uh, and it's because of the government-imposed shutdown. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything that the economy did. It was a, there was an outside factor that came in and shut down that economy. Uh, but that didn't make it not hurt for the people that own these projects. And so they end up selling them or postponing them or or, or whatever, and because of that, there's still uncertainty. But there is a chance that they still come back because it, it wasn't a true recession. It was it was a suppression. Uh, there's still a chance that when that re relief valve uh, lets go, that things could could bounce back. And and I hope they do for these graduates because uh, Joey and I were there. We know how scary that was, uh, not knowing uh, what we were gonna do. We just spent all this time learning all this stuff and. There was nobody to hire us. And uh, it's, it's good to hear that you're consistent. And what you said, you know, zoom in, you need these skills. You need to per be the person that uh, they can hire when they've only got a few choices. And that was me. You did that for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I was interning at Lafarge and they tried to hire me right at the end of my internship. But I still had uh, what, three more classes I had to do. And then you said, I'll, I'll figure it out. And you you. Uh, crafted a semester out of nothing and said, here, take this while you're in Kansas City. Just <laughs> just do it online from over there. And uh, and that was that. It wasn't easy, by the way. Online engineering economics is not easy. Do not do that to people. It was not nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I when you when you have a window like that, I, I know when you got a strike and I was glad you were able to strike and we could help. But those things come up and we have to be flexible and agile along with the students. And I think this coronavirus is just proving that again. We've got to be creative and and be there for the, the kids, whatever, you know, creeps up right now. Residential builders are just clamoring to get our kids. They are so busy building around here is on fire. So 
I would suspect that that's where a lot of the kids will go just to get their foot in the door and then migrate maybe in their other area at some point if they can't get, you know, maybe their original pick. Josh, did you have anything for our esteemed guest uh, before we have to let her go? I mean, I I have a lot of things. Uh, (laughs) I have have everything but time, unfortunately. Uh, Yeah, with me being the, the, the odd man out here in the room and not, I didn't have the privilege of, of going through the program. I really wish I did now. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I have questions for days. And Dr. Brown, you speak so well. I mean, we could we could turn this into a three-hour Joe Rogan podcast if you want to. But that's <laughs> All right. Not, She's the one that said she had to go at three o'clock, not <laughs> us. So. Right. Well, it's apparent that you're truly passionate about what you do. That comes out in your in your stories and your answers and everything. And that's that's very positive and it's, it's great to see. And we appreciate your time here on the podcast. It was wonderful. It's always nice to talk with people who appreciate the role of an academic. <laughs> it's sometimes a, a job that, you know, any teacher you talk to, right? It's like, what am I doing? And, and these little knuckleheads, whether they're five years old or 25 years old, um, you know, you just wonder how you got in that business. But concrete got me into this business and I'm so thankful for it. And I'm so thankful for the network of alumni that are out there fighting the good fight. Uh, I feel like I'm living vicariously through all of you. And, and that keeps me going, too, because I know that if I ever needed anything, you guys would have my back, too. So so that's a comforting feeling hanging out here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Uh, what's a good way for us to connect with these other alumni? Is there a certain place we can go to connect? Well, we have a Facebook site, MTSU CIM alumni, that, that's got about 180. Um, I didn't mention the statistic, but we just graduated our 1,000th CIM major in May. So that was pretty exciting. Um, so 180 or so, I think, are pretty plugged in uh, by, by being on that site. That helps. We do have a website. The patrons have a, 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 a website that kind of keeps people abreast of fundraising opportunities. We do skeet shoots and golf tournaments and and we love seeing alumni. Um, So we always are trying to extend an offer for them to come visit. We're going to definitely throw a big party next year when we break ground on our building. So that's going to be awesome to have that facility really be a showpiece for the future. But I think it'll just be a great um, thing for alumni to come visit with their families and, and see you know, the industry that or the the university that got them into this great industry. So I believe alumni are are the next mouthpiece for our program. I, I tell everybody now when I talk to them at graduate or exit interview, did I do exit interviews with you when you guys graduated? Okay. We started exit interviewing everybody. So I sit with all the exiting seniors and I ask them questions about their time and and one of the things I tell them is replace yourself. Find somebody that, you know, could come into the program um, and and you be that be your legacy is that you found the next person um, to sit, you know, sit in that seat and and take this curriculum and and be part of the business. So replacing yourself is important because it just it's word of mouth that gets this program out there. It's it's a difficult sell to an 18 year old high school kid. So, yeah, it's still it's still a. Soapbox I have to get on every every day. Joey, did you uh, did you have anything for Dr. Brown? I think we're over the time that she had a lot of this. And uh, like Josh said, we'll take it all if uh, she gives it to us. But uh, trying to respect that. Anything else for her before we uh, send her off? 
Uh, no, not a whole lot. Just thank you, Dr. Brown, for everything you've done for us, uh, everything you are doing for the industry. We really appreciate it. Just uh, stay out of those nasty asphalt plants you're talking about. Get away from That's them. right. <laughs> she, she didn't see the face he made when she started talking about asphalt. She was all. Oh, looking. I did. I did. I saw the smirk. I did. I saw the lip, the Elvis lip go up. I saw it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for being here we really appreciate it this is the highlight thank you. of the really thank, thank you. you it was fun thank you and josh nice to meet you. excited about your guys doing this it really gives me a, another platform to just you know raw raw about concrete so it's been great yeah. thanks again see you yeah. all right bye, bye. All right, that's going to do it for Episode 7. One final thank you to Dr. Brown for being on the podcast. We certainly enjoyed it, and we hope that you did too. If you did, leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Also, don't forget to go check out our Facebook and Instagram pages where we have a video element to the show. The MP4 files that uh, we have when we do the Skype interview, uh, we post certain clips of that on the social media Uh, as promos for the show. Uh, We throw that out there for your personal enjoyment. And hopefully we can uh, draw more listeners to the podcast itself as it grows in popularity each and every episode. Uh, Be sure to tell your friend about it. And um, hopefully we'll have a a bigger and better episode each and every time. Uh, Until episode 8 comes out, uh, we'll talk to you then and be good in the meantime.